2019 in Denver, Colorado, Canto 3, Chapter 26, Fundamental Principles of Material Nature, Text 35. Nabasiha, from Ether, Shabditamatrat, which evolves from the subtle element sound. Kalagatya, under the impulse of time. The Kurvataha, undergoing transformation. Sparshaha, the subtle element touch. Abhavat, evolved. Tataha, thence. Vayagu, air. Twak, the sense of touch. Sparshasha, of touch. Cha, and Sangraha, perception. Prabhupada's translation and purport. From ethereal existence, which evolves from sound, the next transformation takes place under the impulse of time, and thus the subtle element touch, and thence the air and sense of touch become prominent. Purport. In the course of time, when the subtle forms are transformed into gross forms, they become the objects of touch. The objects of touch and the tactile sense also develop after this evolution in time. Sound is the first sense object to exhibit material existence, and from the perception of sound, touch perception evolves, and from touch perception, the perception of sight. That is the way of the gradual evolution of our perceptive objects. Namasya Shabditam Mantrat Kalakatya Vakulavatam from ethereal existence which evolves from sound, the next transformation takes place under the impulse of time, and thus the subtle element touch, and thence the air and sense of touch become permanent. So this verse is about the nature, again, all these verses are about the nature of the world. So as I mentioned the other day, at the doctoral level, we were required to take this course on the philosophy of science, philosophy of research. And one of the main things that we discussed in that um, semester was who are we and what is our relationship with the world and what is the relationship between our sense perception and sense objects and the mind and the self. And this is a very pervasive and important question. Is what we perceive real? Is the world real? Is there an objective reality? Or is it simply a matter of our sense perception? Why do we care whether or not the world is an objective reality or simply uh, some sort of dreamed sense perception? Why does that matter? How we engage with it, yes. So just like every night we dream, yes, everybody dreams every night, although we may not remember our dreams. So why do we decide that our dreams are not real? What's the basis, yeah? Because they end. Because they end. Well, I don't know, but we think our waking life is real. Most of us think our waking life is real and that ends. So is there some difference between our dream life and our waking life? by which we say our waking life is real and our dream life is not. Yes? When we awake, we're unaffected? 
well, I don't know, sometimes when I'm awake, I'm somewhat affected. But yes, we're not generally affected. The effect doesn't continue. Okay. We don't have conscious control over the dreams. Well, but it doesn't necessarily seem that way when you're dreaming. When you're dreaming, it seems that, yes, isn't it? That we have just as much conscious control as we do when we're awake. Yeah? The conscious reality is one that we all have in common. I think that that is the answer. Because let's say that I have a dream that all of us are dancing in kirtan. And then I come and I say, you know, we were all just like you're singing this which is what they sing every morning in Vrindavan. So let's say I have a dream tonight that all of us are singing this song in front of Krishna Balaram and Radhasham and Gorditai in Vrindavan. And I come and I say, hey, we were all here in Vrindavan. And you'll say, but I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. Right? You say, I didn't experience that. Only you experienced that. And then I say, well, I guess it's not real. But if I say, we were all having a kirtan in front of Radha Govinda this morning, everybody would agree. Yes, that. So we say, okay, that's real. Does that make sense to everybody? There's no corroboration. If I had a dream about you, and you had the same dream about me, and we corroborated it, that would be a very different situation. If I said, I dreamt I went over to your house, and you know, you fed me oranges, and you said, yeah, and I fed you the oranges that were from Valencia, California. I dreamt that. And then, then we have a very different view of things. Isn't that correct? But is it possible to have a collective illusion? Can you give me some examples of collective illusions? Yeah? What's a collective illusion? The Holocaust. The Holocaust is a collective illusion? Well, the, the fact that, that there, was a, there was a collective conception that these people were so much less than human that they could be slaughtered. Oh, okay, that kind of thing. So, so there was a collective illusion in the sense that so many people in those countries felt that the people who were slaughtered in the Holocaust were just animals, non-humans. So they were in a collective illusion about that. That's interesting. I haven't had anybody suggest that. Those sort of collective illusions go on practically every time there's a war, by the way. And almost every time there's a war, the enemy soldiers are called some sort of derisive name. So that, you know, you can just kill them with impunity. Okay, some other examples of collective illusions. I, I like that one. That's, that's nice. I'm good. Can I keep that one and use it again? Okay. The bar scene. The bar scene. Well, having never participated in the bar scene, you're going to have to explain this to me. Collective intoxication and illusion. Okay, so everybody's getting together and they're all getting... I think maybe I went to a bar once. So everybody's getting together and they're all getting intoxicated together. And so their collective understanding of what they're experiencing is different from reality. So the designated driver who's at the bar is having a different experience than all the drunk people at the bar. Right? And they'll remember it differently. Okay, I like that one too. Yeah? Okay, so a cult leader who gets a bunch of people to believe that the cult leader is God. Yeah? Um, a movie screening and going to the theaters or a dramatic performance or a sporting event. Yes. Sporting events are very interesting because everyone's rooting for their team. But if you're familiar with professional sports, uh, generally no one on that team actually comes from that city or has any connection to that city. 
In fact, professional athletes are almost slaves. You know, I read a fascinating article about professional sports. They're almost slaves. I mean, they get paid, but they're bought. They're bought, actually. They're they're bought and traded. Did you know that? Seriously, as if they are objects. Yeah, quite interesting. And they have the the athletes have zero emotional connection to the team or to the city. They're they're just pawns. I mean, with college football, it might be a little different, you know, college sports, because you're actually a student at that college. But with professional sports, there's there's absolutely no relation, except maybe for a few players, between themselves and the city or the state or the team, and they can just as easily play for a different team the next year or the year before. It doesn't mean anything to them whatsoever. Plus, the people watching the sport, they don't have any connection with these guys. These guys are not representing them in any sort of meaningful way. But they're really rooting for their team. And they're very happy if their team wins. What benefit it gives to them is completely illusory. You know, if, if I'm from a certain city or state and my basketball team wins, what have I won? I haven't won anything at all. It's not like, do you understand? And I haven't lost anything. So that's definitely a a very strong collective. People really get into that, too. It's very, very strong collective illusion. Some others, oh, you said movie or theater, any sort of dramatic performances. So this is the one I always think of. So all the people in the theater are experiencing the movie or the theater as if it was a reality. And they're all experiencing the emotions of the actors as if they were their own. And they have a collective experience. And people can talk during the movie and during the play afterwards and so forth. Oh, did you see how we did that? Did you see how we did that? Isn't it, right? Wow, that was wonderful and that was amazing and that was terrible. And Why did he do that? I don't know why he, he shouldn't have done that. And if it's a movie, all it is is lights on a screen. Nobody's doing anything. Or you could say it's some actors performing on a set, you know, who are, again, not really doing what they appear to be doing at all. So the actors are doing something different, and then you're watching the lights, but people have a response as if it's actually happening. It's a collective illusion. And some of these collective illusions are very strong and very persistent. You know, at the modern day when entertainment is like the mainstay of society. Right? The average American watches six hours of television a day, which kind of confuses me. Mathematically, I have, have a little bit of a problem with kind of trying to figure out how that's just the average. How do you spend six hours a day watching television on average? I mean, I could see it every once in a while. But anyway, so, and then there's these continuing shows, right? Or continuing movies. And people are very absorbed week by week. Uh, and I think an even deeper one is computer games, where you actually virtually become the character in the game. So I have seen movies and dramas, but I have never played computer games. But I'm assuming many of you people who are substantially younger than me have played computer games. And if, if people play computer games over the internet, you know, you're playing with people all over the world, and you're all different characters. One of my nieces, uh, she got married to someone who she met on a computer game through their virtual character. And that's definitely an illusion. And I've been around people who are really into computer games and when they're not even on the game, they will speak to each other with the names of their characters. 
in the game. And it's as if they're living in a virtual world even when they're not. So that's a very strong collective illusion that, you know, people think they're doing things and so forth. So a lot of philosophers ask this question, how do we know that our waking life, how do we know that that's real? In what sense is it real? If we can have these experiences in a computer game, sort of would you like to use the analogy of a computer game or you know with virtual reality glasses or we have this experience in a theater or a film or we have this experience with sporting events or with some you know religious leader or political leader these are the examples everybody gave right so these kind of experiences why couldn't the whole show be like that? and in fact the Bhagavatam is telling us that it sort of kind of is like that it's real in the sense that it exists. So the computer game exists. Yes? But what is it actually? What is the computer game actually? Story. It's a story, but what is it? What is that? So the programming is ones and zeros. What else would you say it is? That's the software. What about, what else is it? Pixels. Pixels. Okay, it's pixels. What else? It's the idea of the creator. What else is it? Plastic and metal. Plastic metal, yes. It's electricity. Maybe fiber optics, so forth. That's what it actually is. Or like if you're watching a film, it actually is just three different colors. If you could see the three colors, would it be very interesting? If you could just see the three colors, it would be like, that's really boring. Right? Isn't it? If when people were playing the computer game, if instead of seeing the computer game, they just saw a bunch of ones and zeros, and they saw that it was just plastic and metal and electricity, would it be very interesting? No, it wouldn't be very interesting. So the self-realized souls, they see this world as it is. They see this world as just a combination of the modes of material nature agitated by time. And we have, again, kala gacha. Everything's agitated by time. And really, all that's happening here is sound. <laughs> the sound of God that then goes into all these different forms. Are we doing anything here? Do we actually do anything here? No. Not a thing. So when you're playing a computer game, are you doing anything? Yeah, no. You're doing something, right? You have some desire. You know, I have some desire. I'm going to be on this team. I'm going to kill that bad guy. I'm going to jump in the sky or whatever. You know, I'm going to get the gold treasure, whatever you do. So one has some desire, and that desire is communicated. Sorry, I've watched people play games, but I've never done them. And it's communicated through the mouse, or do people still use joysticks? They used to. Huh? Something like it. Okay. So something like a joystick. And what a name. And a, and a mouse and a keyboard. You know. And it's just... And they're, they're communicating this to the machine, which has a program. Right? This is another thing about future and knowing. So does the programmer know that if you do this and this and this, you'll get this and this result? 
Yeah, because it's programmed, but they don't know what you're going to do. So they know the results of what you're going to do, which was this, the one quote I sent you. Prabhupada says, the Krishna knows the results of what we're going to do, therefore he knows the future. But you can still choose what you're going to do. So the programmer, they know exactly what will happen. It's all, it's all pre-programmed. You can't do something into the game and get a different result than the programming. You can't supersede the programming. But you can communicate your desire and get different results. Or uh, we used to have these books in the Guru called Choose Your Own Adventure. Where, again, it's predetermined. There's only like 10 or 15 different outcomes that you can get. But you can choose which outcome you get by what you go to in the book. So we're communicating our desire. And the program is then taking us along that many-branched route. But we don't, are we really enjoying the results of what our decisions? We think we are. But are we? Not really. Sort of, kind of. On, on some sort of emotional, mental level, we are getting some sort of anger, fear, grief, all of the 12 rasas. The class I was listening to this morning, Prabhupada speaking, he doesn't talk about this verse, but he goes on a little further. And he's talking about how Krishna is the source of all the rasas. Everybody knows the 12 rasas? What are the 12 rasas? That's Yeah, okay, so those are the seven secondary. We can do those first. So there's hasya, which is comedy or joy, and then there's... Hmm? Compassion? Oh, gastliness, okay. So compassion, sadness, gastliness, horror. Oh, you said horror. I thought you were speaking Sanskrit. You said... Oh, okay. And next? Somebody else. Sorry, they did that to me in school all the time. So now I'm doing it to somebody else. You already know all the answers. Be quiet. I even get that in this country. Formula, you be quiet. You already know. Now I'm doing it to you. Terrible. Chivalry. And chivalry has many subparts. Uh, one part of chivalry is like, you know, sporting in a sportsmanlike, or should we say sports person-like? I don't know. Saying today's language. And, you know, charity and a feeling of righteousness. That's all chivalry. And another one? Humor. Yeah, we said We said humor, compassion, horror or ghastliness and chivalry dread dread fear dread or fear wonder mm. uh, what's the last one joy sadness horror Chivalry, fear, wonder. What's the last one? Oh, come on. We got humor. What's the last one? This is terrible. All right, we'll go through the five primary where you're looking at that. So what's the five primary? Sakya. Sakya, friendship. Service. Parental. Romantic. 
neutrality, which is admiration. So what's the seventh second? Huh? We got that. Karuna Ras is compassion, and we got astonishment. Anger. There you go. Anger. How could I forget that one? All right. So when one is playing a computer game, one may feel all those things, or some of them think, or one may feel anger, one may feel fear, or horror, or even romance, or friendship. Yes? Right? So there's some rasa that apparently is happening and therefore appears to be real. But why do we say that it's an illusion? It's all the mental platform. It's not touching the soul. None of that rasa is touching the soul. And also, well, as part of that, none of that rasa is touching the soul because it's it's with Krishna's energy separate from him rather than with Krishna. So because it's, like Krishna says, whatever appears to be a value, if it is without relation to me, has no reality, know it to be my illusory energy, that reflection that appears to be in darkness. So as soon as we try to have a rasa with Krishna's energy separate from Krishna, there's, there's, it doesn't touch the soul anymore. And I gave this example uh, during the Sunday feast. You know, if I'm with a friend, or I go to a friend's house, and I try to enjoy that friend's house and that friend's possessions in a way that's separate from that friend, then that whatever enjoyment I get from those things, it's not part of that relationship, yeah? It's, it's displeasing, it's not pleasing. Whereas if my enjoyment of the things in that house are connected to my friend, then, then that's part of our loving relationship. So if I enjoy the things anywhere, this world, the spiritual world, in relationship to my love for Krishna, then because I'm, connect, I'm part of Krishna, then that's a real enjoyment. But if I try to enjoy it separately, it's, the enjoyment isn't real. If you want to think about it as cells in the body. So if cells in the body, they're all alive, right? Our little cells in the body. So if, do we want the cells in our body to be happy? Yeah? Would everybody like their stomach cells to be happy? Anybody want miserable stomach cells? No. Right? So I got cells in my stomach and my intestines and my liver and my gallbladder. So what's the best way for them to be happy? Krishna Prasad, but I'm giving an analogy. And in the analogous, metaphorical sense, for the whole body to be happy, if they're working for the happiness of the body. Now, of course, the little cells in my body are probably kind of not very smart. So they probably have no awareness that I exist whatsoever. They probably don't know they're working for me. Poor guys. Sorry about that. But if they want to be happy, still they have to work for my benefit. They have to work for the benefit of the body as a whole. Correct? Yes? And then then they can enjoy, analogously, real happiness. Now suppose the cells try to get happiness separate. Suppose they try to take the nutrition and the oxygen that is being given to them. You know, the waste system, all that systems that are being given to them and try to enjoy it separately from the benefit to my body. What do they become? That is cancer. They become cancerous. So then they can't actually flourish. They can't actually become happy. They get, they get cut off. And they end up damaging the very body that's sustaining them. Yeah? 
So it's exactly like that. If we try to enjoy things separately from Krishna, we become a, a cancer in the universal body. And we're, we actually sicken the universal body, in a sense. I mean, not that Krishna can become sick. But we experience suffering. We don't experience actual pleasure. And when we work for Krishna, we experience pleasure. So as soon as I try to get rasa from Krishna's energy in a mood of separation from Krishna, then it's not real rasa. It's not touching me, the soul, because I've lost my connection. Is that philosophically, logically clear? Okay, but Krishna's very kind. He's extremely kind, Subhidam Sarabhutana. And so if we insist on trying to enjoy rasa separately from him, he allows us to have that illusion. That illusory energy is also Krishna's energy. Now that's pretty amazing. It's also Krishna's energy. Krishna says, if you want to enjoy separately from me, it won't make you happy. But I will allow you to imagine that you're happy. Now you can say, well, if Krishna was really kind, why wouldn't he allow it to make us happy? Actually. Many people ask that question. Can anybody answer that? Yeah? Oh, this, you haven't said anything. Yes? It's because our constitutional nature is uh, to only enjoy in his association. Yes, it, it's something that's impossible. Yeah. Of course, Prabhupada was asking Krishna to do something that's impossible. And, you know, can he make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? And, and then Prabhupada said, yes, and then he can lift it. One devotee said, when Prabhupada said that, he said, Krishna makes the rock and Balaram lifts it. But I don't know if that's, if that's actually <laughs> Prabhupada said that, but it was one of those heard things. So, in one sense, Krishna does make the impossible possible by allowing us the illusion. The illusion is a way of making the impossible possible. So Krishna gives us an illusion that's so solid to us and so substantial to us that we really, really believe, except in a few lucid moments, where we go, something's funny about this place. I like to has this song like that. He said, this illusion is really strange. So every once in a while in the human form, you go, what is going on here? Something's not right. But generally, we really believe that we are enjoying separately from Krishna. So in that sense, Krishna has made something that's impossible, possible. But if you say, can he make something that's impossible, possible, you're saying, can he make what's true, false, and what's false, true? It, it's sort of an absurd argument. When uh, later on in the Bhagavatam, in the seventh canto, so the question is asked, is Krishna impartial? Because it seems like he favors the demigods. And the answer is, Krishna is impartial, but the universe is set up to favor the mode of goodness. And you might think, well, that's pretty partial. But if you think of what is the mode of goodness, it means what's real. Sat means real. And to say that things are set up to favor being the way they are, it's really what we call logic a tautology. Everything favors what it is. If you use things the way they are, they work. And if you use things in a way that they aren't, are, then they don't work. So I always give this example. You can walk through doors, but not walls. 
it, it's just such a simple example. You know, the wall isn't designed to punish you. The architects and the builders, they didn't say, let's put these walls here so people can bump their heads. That wasn't, that's not the function of the wall. Or the windows, you know, if you try to walk out the window. So the windows are not there for people to fall out them and break their necks. But if you try to walk through windows and walls, then you become hurt. And if you try to walk through doors, you're happy. And you can say, well, why can't Krishna have you walk through walls? It, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a ridiculous question. Why didn't the architect make walls that you could walk through? Well, then they wouldn't be walls, then they'd be doors. And, or then there just wouldn't be any walls at all. Could you have a building without walls? Sure, you could have a building without walls, but then it would be rather cold in Denver. You know, so it's, it's sort of why did Krishna make reality the way he made reality is sort of that question. Why is, why is it as it is? And when Prabhupada was asked that question, why does anything, why is it what it is? He said for ananda, for pleasure. So this is a question of trusting that Krishna understands the best way to have pleasure. Yes. Would it be accurate to say that since the, it's said that the pleasure of the servant is greater than the pleasure of the master, then therefore Krishna, even if he could put us in the position of God, he wouldn't want to because the position of the servant is actually more blissful. He wants to experience more happiness than himself. Well, that's a very, very nice analysis. And in fact, except for Krishna's form as Krishna, all of Krishna's expansions have this mood of servant. And even Krishna gets in the mood of serving his devotees. Krishna gets in the mood of serving Srimati Radharani, of serving Madhya of serving the cowherd boys, of serving the cows. So Krishna is also serving the devotees. It is interesting, though, that we do sometimes read in the Shastra that Krishna will share his full potencies with liberated Jivas. So that's also there. We can experience everything God experiences. So we can do that. We can't become him. But we can experience everything he experiences as if we were him. Just like the gopis been in their madness of separation, they actually felt that they were God. Prahlad Maharaj also had that experience. And one of the uh, four opulences of Vaikuntha is to share all the power and the opulence of God fully. So there is also an experience that a liberated jiva can have where they feel that they are completely one with God, not in an impersonal way, but they have all the powers and the opulence of God. That's because Krishna isn't envious. It's not that his mood is, well, I'm going to have all the power and you have to stay down there. He's like, I'll share all my power with you. Just like even in this world, a father may share all of his wealth and power with his son. Yes? The, the son may be able to, maybe a signer on the bank account. Maybe a co-owner in the home. And everything that's available to the father is available to the son. Commonly in marriage, it's like that. You know, not every marriage is, is done like that, but many married couples, I know many married couples where they even share passwords, which sometimes creates a problem. But, you know, in many marriages, it's like that. They share the same bank account, they share the same house, they share the same accounts online. I mean, I know some devotees where the same email goes to both the husband and wife, which again, sometimes can be a little awkward. 
But so Krishna also shares everything. Yeah. Yes. I was thinking of this question of why could Krishna or why wouldn't Krishna let me be happy uh, trying to do what I'm doing and be separate from him. It's kinda like saying, why couldn't the creator of prison put me in prison and have me be satisfied with the prison life? Instead yes. Of, instead of focusing on actually being reformed. Yes, that's a very good analysis. Well, it's interesting, it says the demons are envious of their own selves. So a materialistic person is actually envious of their own self as being a part of Krishna and being a servant of Krishna. One hates one's own nature. One wants to be happy in opposition to one's nature. I mean, even materially speaking, we are happiest, even if we're gross atheists and materialists, we are happiest when we work according to our nature. In this life, even though it's a temporary, illusory nature. And everybody knows it. Now, we all know that we are the happiest when we can act authentically, authentically, falsely in the material identity, but authentically according to who we are. This is not some kind of major secret. There's numerous psychological and sociological studies, and it's our own experience. When I'm doing something that I'm naturally very good at, and I'm trained how to do that well, I'm actually trained to be expert in something I'm naturally good at and that I love doing. There are some things I'm good at that I don't like doing and some things I like doing that I'm not good at. But if it's something that I really like doing and I'm good at and I learn to be expert in it and I'm doing that thing for some benefit, for some goal that I can identify as good according to my mentality, then I'm happier than not, yes? In fact, that is, if you look at psychology, the definition of self-actualization, the highest level according to Maslow. That's what he's talking about. Or Csikszentmihalyi talks about flow, which is a sort of materialistic samadhi. You know, when we get into a state where we just feel, I could be doing this forever, and we don't care about eating and sleeping, and, you know, we're just so absorbed, and we love what we're doing, it's, it's when... Who I am is being used expertly in the service of something else. The service of something good. Correct? Yes. This is true even... It's true if you can be a complete atheist. And this is still a fact. So if we say, why can't I be happy being not me? It, it actually, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an illogical question. Why can I be happy being what I am not? But then I'm not I anymore, so who's that being happy? It, it, it actually doesn't make sense. And Krishna says, okay, if you want to do something that doesn't make sense, we'll arrange for you to experience something that doesn't make any sense at all. And at a certain point, you'll say, you know, this doesn't make any sense. So how Krishna does it is quite fascinating here. And, and I, was, I was just looking at this progression 
So from sound comes space. Then from space comes touch. Then from touch comes gases. Now, can you touch space? No, but can you touch gases? Yes. yes. So it's interesting that touch comes first, and then the gases that you can touch. It's like the desire is first, and then the things that fulfill your desire comes. Isn't that fascinating? The concept of hearing is there first before there's something to hear. The concept of touch actually creates what there is to touch. So this is that Krishna is fulfilling our desires. You want to hear, here's a sense object to hear. You want to touch, here's a sense object to touch. Like parents do with children, giving them toys. Prabhupada used that example all the time. He said how you know, his sisters were making fake food while their mother was cooking. You know, I think most parents who cook do this. You give your children some dough, or you give them some play-dough, some clay or something, and you say, here, you make your own japatis. Right? And then the child doesn't bother you. You want to make your own japatis. Make them over here. So we have a desire, and Krishna is fulfilling our desires. So I just thought that this was really fascinating, that the that sound comes before ether and touch comes before the gases. And with each of these, it's like that. That the, the interaction of the senses comes before the, the manifestation that you can interact with. And of course, and again, we're just the witness. We are just witnessing this. We are not doing it. Just like the computer game player who's not really rescuing the treasure, who's not really killing the bad guys, who's not get really running around with their team because their team is in different parts of the planet, sitting on different chairs. Or we're all in the theater, and we're not really you know, jumping from building to building, or we're just sitting in a chair. We're the witness. We may experience the fear on a, in a mental <gasps> just jump from one building to another. So we may experience some mental perversion of rasa, but we're not, we're just a witness. The, the soul is just looking at, actually what we're really looking at is just the mind. We're really just looking at the mind, and the mind is experiencing these things. And we think, oh, I am experiencing these things. And again, every once in a while, we realize there's something funny going on. Something's very strange. Why is it that even though I'm experiencing all these things, I'm not happy, I'm not satisfied. I seem to be having all these rasas, and I'm not satisfied. Like I gave the example the other day of eating and drinking during a dream, and I woke up and I went, why am I still thirsty? But the same principle is applicable spiritually like Lord Rudraksha said, 
that if you get attached to materialistic persons, it's the door to hell, and if you get the same attachment when applied to spiritual persons, is the door to liberation. Or Narada Muni says, does not a thing when applied therapeutically cure a disease that is caused by that very same thing. So this principle that our desires manifest as something is applicable spiritually. Except spiritually, our spiritual desires manifest as a real something that is that was interacting with us, the real person, in a real way, that gives us real satisfaction. And we can experience that even when geographically, spatially speaking, we're still sitting inside of this body and mind. So that's what we're trying to do in Krishna consciousness. We're trying to develop our desires. Instead, I mean, it's very interesting in the second canto in the Chaitanya Shloka, I believe, where Vishnu Chakravati Thakur is explaining that Krishna wants to give himself to be enjoyed by the living entity. Just like we want people to enjoy our company, yeah? Yes? Don't we want people to genuinely enjoy being with us and talking to us? We're always worried, you know, oh, are you enjoying talking to me or do you think I'm boring? Do you really want to hang out with me? Are you doing this as just under some social obligation? Right? We always have this underlying anxiety. Do people really like me? Do they really want to be with me? But we, we want that. We want to be the source of pleasure for another living being out of friendship and love, not out of exploitation. I don't want people to cut me up and eat me. And I don't want to be the source of pleasure for another living being like that. But I do want to be the source of pleasure for, another, for other living beings. I want to feel that I am the catalyst to give others happiness, right? The definition of evil is I want to be the catalyst to give others distress. I want to be the instrument of others' distress. I want to enjoy the fact that I have given others distress. I want to enjoy knowing that I have the power to hurt others. We do this even in our intimate relationship. We have intimate relationships with people where we take pleasure in knowing enough about them that we know how to hurt them in the most sensitive ways. But what we really, that's not exactly a happy thing though for us, but actual happiness for us is when I'm the source of others' happiness. So Krishna feels the same way. He wants to be the source of our happiness. And he wants to be the source of our happiness through our senses. He wants us to enjoy seeing him. We like people to enjoy seeing us, right? Don't we? If someone goes, yeah, I really don't like seeing you. We would feel bad. Get your ugly face out of here. I don't want to see you. <laughs> no, we'd be hurt, you know? Like Prabhupada says, Krishna's hurt and the impersonalists say, we don't even have any eyes or any nose or any ears. You know, you're, you're lame, you can't walk. And Krishna likes it. We look at him and go, wow, he's really attractive. I remember once, I forget what temple I was in. It was uh, right at deity greeting and myself was standing with some woman, I can't remember even who it was we were right up to the altar and I said, wow, Krishna's looking so handsome today. She says, oh, are we allowed to think Krishna's handsome? I said, who do you want to think is handsome? A movie star? Krishna wants us to think that he's attractive. He wants us to enjoy his beauty, his fragrance, his kindness, his instructions in relationship with love of him, not independently. Not let me take your stuff and steal it. So when we have those desires then guess what? Our spiritual senses manifest. Because it's very hard to appreciate Krishna with material senses. Atashri Krishna Namadi Nabhaved Graham Indriya. 
So when I, when I desire to have spiritual sense of happiness, my spiritual senses awaken and the ultimate object of my enjoyment, Krishna and his abode and his service and his devotees, also manifest. And that is the reality. And then I'm happy. So understanding how we're entangled here can also help us understand how to get out of our entanglement. And it can give us some detachment, not from the world itself, which we should appreciate as Krishna's energy, but from concepts of in trying to enjoy the world separately from Krishna. Like Prabhupada said, if you go to a garden, you say, oh, it's all false. He said, the gardener will be very depressed. He said, so don't depress Krishna by telling him that the material world is all false. But appreciate Krishna. Right? If you go to the garden and you say to the gardener, oh, I see that you have all these different varieties of flowers, but all the same colors. You put all the red flowers here, but they're... You have roses and you have tulips. And I, I see that you have them so that there's always something blooming and as soon as something stops blooming, something else starts blooming. The gardener will be really happy. Yes? We hardly ever get appreciation like that, by the way. It's a nice way to appreciate each other too. So if you really look at the details of what someone has done and you appreciate that, they feel very satisfied. So if we look at the world, wow, Krishna, it's amazing how you've made this world. So many ways we can appreciate it. And appreciate in relation to him, then interestingly enough, we don't even have illusionary happiness here. We get real happiness even here. As Prabhupada says, there's one lecture where Prabhupada says three times in a row that for a person with proper vision there's no material world. And he says, there's no material world. There's no material world. Material world is a state of consciousness. Maya exists only within the mind. Krishna book, chapter Maya simply is, I see things separately from Krishna. And as soon as I want to see things separately from Krishna, Krishna manifests an illusion when they appear to be separate from him. And that illusion is also Krishna's energy. Just see, I can't get away from it. The ability to see Krishna as absent is also Krishna. Forgetfulness is also Krishna. If we're doing something... To forget Krishna, which happens, we have to say, even in the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, people do things to forget Krishna. We won't have to, we won't go into any details. But even if a person is doing something to forget Krishna, guess where that forgetfulness comes from? Krishna. Krishna, so he's right there, helping you to forget that he's right there. He's always with us. He's right there saying, oh, you want to try to get rasa without me in a way that's not your nature? Okay, fine. Here's the illusion. So this is the Bhagavad It's so wonderful, isn't it, that the Bhagavatam is explaining all the details of how Krishna creates this illusion. So I want to thank you very much for having me here in Denver and giving me an opportunity to speak on the Bhagavatam. We're going to be doing a program tonight, yeah? Where is that? Denver University. Okay. So I'm doing a program in Denver University about education, but I'm leaving tomorrow morning. So I probably won't come back to the temple again. So thank you very much for hosting me and the wonderful kirtans. And th- this temple has one of the most satisfying intellectual atmospheres of any temple that I visit in the Hare Krishna movement. Uh, Pune is a close contender. But 
and also some of the most wonderful kirtans. So it's really a very nice place for kirtans. And it's also very enlivening that there's a variety of ethnic and national backgrounds and degrees of melanin in the skin and facial features and gender and age here. We have a wide variety of demographics. So in many of our ISKCON temples, it looks like everybody came from the same part of the world. So it's, it's very nice here that we see that there's the International Society for Christian Consciousness at a temple that's in Denver. So that's, that's also something very enlivening. And please increase that more and more and more and more and more. Work at how you can expand the variety of demographics that you're bringing to the temple. You know, how, how, how can we present Christian consciousness? Are there certain socioeconomic groups or certain groups by marital status or, you know, that, that are not so much coming? What can we do to bring them? Uh, certain national ethnic groups. How can we have even a more international society here? But it's very wonderful. It's one of the few places I go where when I ask people questions from Prabhupada's books, they know the answer. So more and more in this kind, if I ask questions based on the books, everybody's just like... No, it's hard to get the benefit of Prabhupada's books if you don't read them. <laughs> if you just, I mean, Prabhupada did say if you have the books on your shelf, then you still get some benefit. Narayan's in your house. You know, but I don't think that's the idea. <laughs> We're supposed to read them, we're supposed to study them. And you can see that when people have nice kirtan, they want to read the books, and when people read the books nicely, they want to have nice kirtan. Well-attended Mangalarti, that's also a real asset in the Hare Krishna movement. You don't see that everywhere. So that's, you see it in some places, but not everywhere. So that's very nice. So it's already 9 o'clock. So, any, any questions on anything we've discussed the last few days is fine? Yes? I, I have one reflection and a question. Um, just this point again that you mentioned last Sunday and today about um, when we enjoy the possessions of a friend in a relationship with a friend, I was thinking that actually then our, our affection for that friend increases. That's right. Whereas like if it's separate, then, then it will create tension. And I think that sense where it's revived. Yes. Revive, right? Yes. So, yeah, it's like when we're... When we're Enjoying the creation in relationship with him, it actually just increases our love. It acts, yeah, it acts as a stimulus, as an udipan. Mm-hmm. Yes, Hare Krishna. And then the question I had is, you know, worrying, worrying is virtual reality. What, why do you think that there's still this, you know, increasing desire to go further into another virtual reality? Like all the examples that we gave, all these other collectible illusions. Why is that? Why do we want to increase the illusion more and more and more and more and more? That's an interesting question. I mean, the the simple answer is that when you're in a human form, one is definitely aware that illusory enjoyment is not pleasurable. There's some awareness on some level, at least some of the time, that there's something funny going on here. That, that, that things are superficial and not really satisfying. You know, animals don't really have an awareness of that. that when, the, when we're in an animal body or in a plant body or a bug body or, you know, germ body, our consciousness is so covered that it's very difficult to even, you know, have any understanding that we're not in a favorable situation. 
But for human beings, as soon as we have this human body, it's like, it just keeps coming up over and over and over again. And there's various ways of dealing with these emotions that we feel when we're not satisfied here. You know, what, what you can call in psychology the negative emotions. So although part of what we try to enjoy in this world is fear and anger and horror and, you know, lamentation, we try to enjoy those things. We engage in fearful sports and watch fearful movies and we watch sad movies, you know, and, and we watch ghastly movies. I mean, it's not like we don't try to enjoy those things. But those things are also thought of as negative emotions, yeah? So when, when our attempts to enjoy the illusion are frustrated, we generally feel sad, horrified, you know, or angry, or lonely, or, you know, some of those things, which are indicators to us that we're doing something wrong. Like if I walk into the wall and I bump my head, that's an indicator that I didn't walk into the door. It's, an in, it's like an indicator light, you know, on the machine. You know, sometimes you have that. Isn't that like you push the wrong button and it makes a noise? Yeah? It's true. Yeah, the operation game. But that's true with software, too. Like you click on the wrong thing and it just makes a noise. Isn't it? Like this is not the right thing to do. So those negative emotions, they're that kind of an indicator button. A lot of physical pain is like that, too. It's an indicator button that it, well, you're not doing this right. You know, like my father used to tell me when I was a little kid, all the time. He said, don't force things. If you force things, you'll break them. If you, if you think you have to force them, then pull back and see how to use them. So how can we respond to this indicator light? One of the ways we can respond to an indicator light is by putting a piece of tape over it. It's not there. So there's basically, psychologically, there's three ways of dealing with our, our deep sense of dissatisfaction in material life. One is that we express it. And when we express it, we try to enjoy our expression of it. So I express my anger at materialistic life, I express my grief, I express my horror, I express my fear, and then I try to get into that. And, and this sort of technique is, is definitely being propounded by some people in the field of psychology today. You know, just get those emotions out. Just express them. Now, the problem is that when we express those things, we generally lose our friends. We may break items. We may lose our possessions. We may lose our friends. And we're not really very happy with ourselves afterwards. You know, if we just express our anger and yell at everybody and break things when you're done, it's not like you feel peaceful and satisfied, isn't it? Or if you just wail in grief. <laughs> so that's one way is to try to express them. Then another way is to try to repress them. I'm actually just fine. I'm totally fine. There's no problem at all. Every, everything's just cool. Now repression is done consciously, but after a while what's repressed becomes suppressed so much that we forget that we have all this churning anger and grief and fear. And suppressed emotions over time will cause physical illness. In fact, a large portion of chronic illness comes from suppressed emotions. Which is why the psychologists say, well, why don't you just express them? But that causes a whole other host of problems. Okay, so if expressing my emotions ruins my possessions and my relationships and makes me feel bad about myself, 
And if repressing my emotions turns into suppression that makes me ill, well, maybe I just forget that I just escape them. I just run away from them. And how do I run away from them? I imagine that I have some other emotions. You know, practically all of that's done through chemical intoxication. You know, alcohol, marijuana, heroin, whatever. It's an escape. Or sometimes it's done through some psychological... We were talking about how that's one of the reasons for depression. Is you can't handle what's going on, so you just shut the whole thing down. You just escape everything. And then, you know, there's also non-chemical intoxicants. So a lot of entertainment is a non-chemical intoxicant. So like, you know, now we have electronic intoxicants, basically. Where I go into another world and I forget that I have those emotions. I'm not exactly repressing them and I'm not exactly expressing them. But I try to feel a whole other set of emotions that makes me escape the emotions that are actually going through me. Does that make sense? So those are the three main ways that materialists deal with their sense of dissatisfaction about materialistic life. Either to express that dissatisfaction and then try to enjoy the expression of that dissatisfaction. And people get really into that, expressing their anger and, you know, and we do have to remember those are perverted rosses. People get into enjoying their anger, enjoying their grief, enjoying their horror. So that is also another reason people do those things. They do those things to escape their emotions and they do those things as a safe way to express the emotions. So if I want, let's say I want, I'm very angry because I've tried to enjoy this material world and it hasn't worked out like Krishna says it's going to happen, right? In Gita 262, 63. It says you're going to, you're going to contemplate things, you're going to be attached, you're going to lust after them, and you're going to get angry. So every conditioned soul is experiencing some amount of anger. Why won't things work out the way I want? Yes? We all have that running through us. So one, one way I can escape that anger is, you know, I'll watch a comedy movie. But another way I can do it is I can watch a movie that makes me angry. Suppose I watch a, a documentary movie about, you know, people being exploited in Honduras or something. So then I feel, okay, I have a, a legitimate way to express my anger. It's one reason why people watch sporting events. You can, you can yell at the other team or the referee, you know, and it's completely socially acceptable. Everybody's like, ah, hey, 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 you stupid referee. I saw this once I was in the devotee's home and their, their son, who was in their 20s, I guess, was watching the sporting game. He was the only one sitting in the living room watching the TV. And I walked through the living room and he, he jumps out of his seat and he's waving his fist at the television set and screaming at the television set. You know, and I thought, I don't think this is going to work very well. But that, that's it's a way of, of safely, you know, you get together with your friends and you take this anger that you've been repressing. You're angry at your wife, your husband, your boss, your dog, your bank account, you know, your backache, whatever you're angry at. You know, and you, you, you express it by yelling at the team. Or that's why people get into political rallies or really into politics. Donald Trump. One of my old uh, high school friends, elementary school high school friends on Facebook, like two out of every three posts of hers are just anger at Donald Trump. It's like, it's like I sometimes wonder what kind of birth are you going to take? Oh, no. 
But, but that's like every society has sort of legitimized ways of, you know, you have these pent-up feelings, and so you can express them in that way where you're safe. You know, if, if you're yelling at the other political party, or you're yelling at the other sporting event, you're not breaking the furniture in your house, and you're not, you know, getting get a divorce. You follow? And maybe you're actually angry at your wife, or you're really angry at your husband, you just yell at the guy on the team. So that's one, that's, one is that sort of safe expression, which is also why people take intoxication. Like I've been told that in Northern Europe, among the Euro- Northern European countries, you're really not supposed to express any emotion. Unless you're drunk. So that's what they do. They get drunk, and when they're drunk, it's, it's socially acceptable. And I can say, well, I was drunk. And so people also take intoxication for that purpose. It gives them a permission in society to express emotions which otherwise they can't express. So it does those two things. You escape or you express. But those are our three materialistic options. Express, escape, and repress or suppress. If you do it unconsciously. So in all forms of yoga, the idea is that you become detached from the material emotions and material desires and you realize that you're the witness. So you neither have to express, nor repress, nor escape. You just observe. And you see them as not me. You don't identify with them. Of course, generally, in the other forms of yoga, you don't identify with them, but you don't have any spiritual emotions. So often the goal in other forms of yoga is just to come to this platform of equanimity where one experiences the happiness of just sort of peace and relief. Whereas in bhakti yoga, we try to be the observers of the material emotions where we, we allow them to be their Krishna's energy. We, we don't need to have them be our masters and express them nor do we have to be their masters. I'm not the master of the material energy. So I don't have to be their master and repress them. We can just leave them alone. But I can leave them alone, not just because I want to be a neutral witness, but because I'm experiencing the real form of those emotions on the spiritual platform. Now, if we're not experiencing the real form, pardon just from Nivartite, if we're not experiencing the real form of spiritual emotions on the spiritual platform. And nor am I practicing a system of yoga of detachment and witnessing that I'm going to do that express, escape, repress, even if ostensibly I'm a devotee. Just by the way. Long answer, but... Some questions just don't have an easy, short answer. Anybody else? Anybody wants to go to breakfast? That's fine. But yes. I like having question and answer time here because it's such a vibrant community of devotees. Yes. Thinking about family members or people in my life who don't have a spiritual practice, but are seemingly happy or seemingly have some sense of enjoyment and pleasure in your life. Um, that this is, it's more in terms of goodness or passion. And um, 
they, they also experience suffering, but that there's enough, they're, they're satisfied with the happiness that they're getting in their life to not go any deeper or go any further in, and into um, basically spirituality or discovering. Yes. Is that just a comment? Um, I guess it is a comment or observation, but I'm wondering, like, um, is what is at what point can can those individuals um, advance? Well, of course, we have our our uh, our means of giving them some spirituality uh, without their conscious participation. And the effect of that, of them hearing the holy name, of them taking prasadam, even of them liking you, as Prabhupada told my father, the effect of that is it, it gives some clarity on that mirror of the mind. And at a certain point, it will give them the opportunity to see things more honestly. So although people in the, in the modes of nature, even in the mode of ignorance, think that they're happy, if you were to ask them, well, what's the nature of this happiness? Is, is, is your happiness limitless? Who would say, well, my happiness is limitless? Are you happy all the time? Is your happiness of a, of a quality that feels very genuine all the time? Is it unmixed with distress? You know, if you were to ask those questions, they'd say, well, no, but they'd say, but that's not possible. That would be their response. You know, and if you say, well, would you like it to be possible? They'd say, well, sure. But even those people, periodically, they question if they're human. They will periodically question. The problem is the answers that they come up with. The answers they come up with is, oh, that means I need to divorce my spouse and get a new spouse. Or that means, you know, I need to take up a different sexual orientation. I mean, people, you know, they'll be 50 years old and they've already been married with three kids and they say, oh, I, I think I'm actually a different orientation. You know, so I need to have a different sexual partner or a different type of sexual partner. Or I need to get a different career or I need to live in a different place. Or I need to get a different computer. The, the problem isn't so much that they don't ask the questions. The problem is how they answer them. I just need to exercise more, or I need to eat different foods, or I need to have a different philosophy of life. I need to, you know, go to a different self-help guru. And, that, and I, I'll just adjust the material nature grossly and subtly. It's not that we Krishna conscious people never adjust the material nature. Like you move the chairs forward for class. Why? Why couldn't they be two or three yards back? Why do they have to be moved two or three yards forward? You find it more favorable. So it's not that we never adjust the material nature, or it's like the cushion you have here is so thin and your asana is so hard. So I put another, you know, the first day I was sitting here, it's like, it's painful. So then I put another cushion under it. So it's not that we can never make any adjustment 
in the material nature. But if I think by having two cushions instead of one, I'm going to experience unlimited eternal spiritual bliss, that's a problem. Does that make sense? You know, so a devotee may say, well, I, I'm really, I, I'm not going to be a good wife or good husband. You know, I just have no interest in this stuff. I really need to be a renunciate. I'm a fully energized person without being married. You know, I can work harder than a married person without marriage. I would just, I would drive a spouse crazy, just like Prahladananda Swami. He one time told me about his marriage. So he was ordered to get married by the temple president. And um, so out of obedience, he said, okay, I'll get married. So I don't know, do any of you know Prahladananda Swami? Has he ever come here? So he's, he's memorized the whole Bhagavad Gita, like literally everything, and the whole Krishna book. One time in Russia, when we were all taking prasadam at a festival there, he said, who would like to hear a chapter of Krishna book? And I said, I would. And he just recites it, and I've read Krishna book enough. I've probably read Krishna book over 40 or 50 times. That I can recognize it was word for word. I think he's read Krishna book 160 times. I'm not sure how many times he's read the Bhagavatam, but many. Many, many. Bhagavatam and CC. So he's read all of Prabhupada's books many, many, many times. So he sits down with his new wife, and of course, what does he do? What does he do? He reads Bhagavad Gita. He said, let's read Bhagavad Gita to you. He said she promptly fell asleep. And he said after two weeks she left him. He said she could understand that I wasn't going to satisfy any of her desires. So somebody like that shouldn't get married, you understand? So you may say, well, you know, I, I, I'm not going to satisfy, well, I'm not going to satisfy a man, I'm a renunciate by nature. Or you may look at yourself and say, you know, I need the association of the opposite sex or I'm not going to actually be productive in life, I'm not going to be able to function, and I want to have a career in the world. Which is most people want some sort of career, they want to interact with the world. And I want to have my own place, and I want to have my own money, I want to have my own kitchen. I don't just want to be told what to do all the time. So a person may decide to get married or not to get married. But if you think that getting married is going to make you spiritually in ecstasy or not being married is going to make you in spiritual ecstasy, that's a bunch of nonsense. I'm going to get happy. Being married or unmarried is not going to make you happy. Having children or not having children is not going to make you happy. Having money or giving up all your money is not going to make Living in Denver or living in Vrindavan, doesn't, it, that's not what's going to make us that page. It's not, it's just not a fact. So we may make these adjustments practically and say, okay, I really need to be married or men. I better make sure I never get married. I mean, we may make these adjustments. We're supposed to do that. Like you're supposed to shift gears in your car. But the materialists think, if I make this adjustment, that will make me happy. That's the main difference. They are aware. Believe me, they're aware. Definitely. They're constantly trying to adjust things in their life. You know, they're trying to adjust their mentality or they're trying to adjust their externals. Or they just go deep into some kind of intoxication. Yeah? Anybody else? Yes.
Yes, thanks, Prima. So, um, could you say something about the mind, the material mind? Does the mind become purified and spiritualized? Is it the same mind as um, the soul has? Oh, okay. So, no, the soul has its own mind. The material mind that we have is a machine. Yantra, yantra rudani maya. It's not only the physical, with the gross body is a machine, but the mind is also a machine. So, what does a purified mind mean? Purified mind means that it's absorbed in thoughts of Krishna. Manmana bhavamad bhakta. And what happens when you purify the mind is it dissolves the mind. You don't need a, a mental machine if you just want to think of Krishna. You have your own mind as a soul. You don't need the material mind. Does the Bhagavatam compare it to a coconut where the inside is separated from the husk? And Lord Kapila there says you use the mind as a hook to catch the Lord, like you catch a fish with a hook. And, and Jiva Goswami explains that the Lord enters our consciousness through the pathway of our meditation. So we use the material mind to think of Krishna as much as we can. And by doing that, we attract Krishna. He says, oh, you want me to come? You want, you want me to be present in your consciousness? But he has to come personally and be present in our consciousness. And when he does that, it's not in the material mind. And if we just want to think of him, what do we need a material mind for? We don't. We may need an external body still to do some service in the world. But we no longer need that subtle body, which is our subtle identification. And that is liberation. Liberation is the dissolution of the subtle body, not the gross body. It's a, it's a covering over the soul. It's a subtle covering. Is that okay? Like people identify so much of the mind, you know, they kind of say, I'm a thinking thing, I think, therefore I am, I exist, or I am, or whatever. People identify so much, and uh, the lines blur between intelligence and mind, you're not sure. Yes. People identify so much of the mind. Absolutely. So is it the same mind? No. No, it's not. Not the same mind. The I is different. The real I, the real self, is not the material mind. What I was talking about being the detached witness of the feelings, material feelings and desires, you know, thinking, feeling, and willing, that's only possible if you're not the material mind. Anybody in any genuine spiritual practice doesn't have to be Godi Vaishnavism, this kind anyway, any genuine spiritual practice is trying to get themselves to understand that they are the observer of the mind and the body both. That the thoughts and feelings and desires of the mind are not theirs. And therefore they neither have to express them, nor escape them, nor repress them, because they're not theirs. That, that understanding that I am the witness should be a natural byproduct of proper chanting. But Krishna does also give that as a deliberate practice as part of sadhana. He says it's undoubtedly difficult to control the restless mind, but it's possible by suitable practice and by detachment. 
and where after giving the fall down sequence in 262 and 263 and 264, he gives the mental practice, be free from attachment and aversion, and he gives the physical practice, regulate your senses. And he says, if you're free from attachment and aversion, that's stepping back and understanding the mind is not me. I can let those thoughts, feelings, and desires flow through me like rivers flowing into the ocean. It's always being filled, but it's always still. And on the physical level, I regulate my senses and use them in Krishna's service. Then what do you get? Bhagavad Prasada. You get the mercy of the Lord, which ultimately we need the mercy of the Lord. We're not going to be able just mechanically to understand that I am the observer of the mind and to regulate our physical senses. But our efforts to do that invoke his kindness on us. Oh, you want to do that? Let me help you. Like he helps us with everything. But any bona fide spiritual process involves that. Those, that mental and physical practice. Yes, and this will be the last one. You could pass down the mic to Mother Nidra. Thank you so much for classes and association. Our um, Acharya sometimes exhibit uh, what seems to be um, maybe to the materialist lack of being able to heal myself with a you know, fully controlled mind that, mm. that their devotees are experiencing different things um, with the gross body or subtle body. Um, so sometimes we're questioning, well, why isn't that major leader, you don't have this problem or that problem with the body, why were you not able with your practice to overcome all these things and why can you not that is a very good question. That's a question that I've been pondering a lot, probably in the last year or so, but I've pondered a lot over the years, that we know that the, the mind has the power to heal the body. It does. And why do we see that, that sometimes very advanced spiritual practitioners don't do that, or apparently don't do that? So we have to remember that those who are genuinely advanced, they're also servants. And they have a particular service to render, and their particular service may mean not exhibiting or exhibiting a particular power that they have. They're in the mood of service. For others, they may just not be that advanced, frankly. I mean, for some, they may just genuinely not be that advanced. But for others, it's a question of service that we have a, a, a service and a role to play. And sometimes that role to play is to apparently have go through some sort of distress, which for the devotee is not distress at all. They're not experiencing as distress. So at, at least one can do that. You know, it's, it's, not a, it's not always that just with the mind you're going to heal a broken bone, although that is possible actually. But at least one will not experience any distress from it. Like Robert said, Stalin was not distressed by the pain of a surgical operation. So even a materialist, he says, can put their mind in such a way that they're not distressed by a little, literal physical injury. You know, surgical operation, someone's literally cutting into your body. But not, and he was certainly not a devotee. So that is, that, that is most certainly possible for any devotee, even those who are not advanced. You don't have to be advanced in Krishna consciousness to do that. 
And if we're not doing that, then we might question why. And Prabhupada gave that as something that devotees should learn how to do, that they should become detached from the pains and pleasure of their body. And in fact, Krishna says that someone who does that is very dear to him. That doesn't mean suppression. No, but certainly one can do that. And we, are, we are expected to be able to do that as spiritual practitioners, yes, certainly. But yeah, we find even great devotees, they may be put in some situation where they're injured or they're defamed, dishonored like Draupadi, you know, as part of the, their service for the Lord. That may be there. And then there's yet another explanation. Just like, what does your name mean? It literally means sleep. So, how is it that you have this name that you're the servant of sleep? You know what um, Ramashwar who told me that he was a GDC? He said, uh, well, uh, I would like to tell you... Use the mic. Yes, and in fact, Rupa Goswami lists the various Vyabhichari Bhavs, which are not only Radharani's, by the way. Uh, all the great devotees experience these Vyabhichari Bhavs, and some of them are like disease and death. So, I mean, look at Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu would have these ecstasies where his joints would separate. Right? And the fisherman thought that he was a corpse. And then he had another ecstasy where he became like a turtle. He had this cormiform where all of his limbs retracted into his body. My goodness. He had, he had ecstasies where blood was coming out. Or where his tears, bless you, where tears were shooting out like from a syringe. I mean, so generally jivas don't exhibit such strange and perhaps disturbing. I mean, the fisherman was disturbed. And sometimes the devotees would be very disturbed to see Lord Chaitanya like that. They're like, hey. So that's also a possible explanation. That sometimes genuinely very advanced people may exhibit ecstasies that look like some material problem. And I'll end with this. So I was at a Rathiyatra festival at an unnamed part of the world and there were many devotees dancing in the kirtan and one of the devotees a very wonderful devotee who happens to have some uh, I don't want to say too much about this so this wonderful devotee in the kirtan went into a state of being stunned and became frozen just in the middle of the kirtan just became completely frozen like a like a like that. It took about 10 minutes for the devotees to bring this other devotee. And it was right kind of in the middle of the kirtan. So I don't know how many people saw it, but I certainly saw it. 
And it was, it was going on for quite a while. And later when I talked to this devotee, the devotee said, oh, I was, I was just doing this and that. I'm like, right, sure you are. So, you know, there may be sometimes, I was just, just in Chaitanya Charitri to this morning, how Mahaprabhu, you know, he went into a state of apparent unconsciousness and these Patan soldiers came. And they said, oh, these associates, they've poisoned you and taken your gold. And they arrested Lord Chaitanya's associates. And then when Mahaprabhu came back to external consciousness, I mean, what they said is, oh, he has a disease like epilepsy. And then he preached to these Muslim Patan soldiers who became great devotees. And they, they ended up, he initiated them, and they ended up spreading Krishna consciousness all over the area. And they became very famous Vaishnavas. But that's what the, oh, oh, he has a disease. Or Mukunda, the royal physician. So he's standing by the king on top of a platform. And someone's fanning the king with a peacock feather fan. And as soon as Mukunda sees the peacock feathers, he just started thinking about Krishna. As soon as he started thinking about Krishna, he again became stunned like that. And because he was on a platform, he fell off the platform. Devotee, I saw this happen to him in the theater. Was, was on the street, and the other devotees were holding this devotee. But with Mukundi, fell off the platform, and the king thought maybe he died. And he rushed, oh, Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And he says, Oh, I have some disease where I have seizures. They explained it in that way. So, I just think another devotee in this kind of, I remember uh, <laughs> that I noticed this devotee was just crying and crying and crying and I said, you know, are you in some kind of ecstasy? And the devotee said, no, no, it's a medical condition. And I thought, oh, okay, sure. I didn't believe it, but I just left it with that. So, you know, that may also be. I'm not saying in every case, but sometimes that's also there. So sometimes people are not actually advanced. They're, they're really not advanced in spiritual consciousness. Well, just, just because someone has a title and a position doesn't mean they're advanced in spiritual consciousness. Some of our most advanced devotees are washing the pots. You know, like Jayananda. I mean, don't, don't, don't equate, please, don't equate title and position with spiritual advancement. Or years in the movement with spiritual advancement. That's not, doesn't work. So sometimes people may not be very spiritually advanced. Sometimes they may take, be taking some role that they're not experiencing the difficulty, but they're taking a role that they're not identifying with. And sometimes it may be a symptom of something else. Is that all right? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. I do want to end here. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai.